Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Multi-Housing News' quarterly podcast featuring guests from the National Multifamily Housing Council, also known as NMHC. My name is Jordana Rothberg, and for the first quarter of 2024, I am so excited to welcome our guest, Sharon Wilson-Gino. Wilson-Gino is the current president of NMHC and holds more than 30 years of experience in the housing industry. Having served council both in-house and outside for various organizations, she's well-versed in housing law and policy, government and non-government contracts, nonprofit organizations, legislation and policy around affordable housing, and of course, so much more. I'm so happy to have you here with me today. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks, Jordana. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. So let's just get started. I know we have a lot to chat about today. To kick things off, let's just talk pretty generally about the year ahead. What do you think 2024 holds for the housing industry, of course, specifically multifamily? 2024, I think most people, including the folks on our team, feel that this is going to be something of a transition year. We've seen a lot of bumps coming out of COVID. And obviously, over the last year or so, we've experienced kind of a perfect storm of a couple different factors. Obviously, the high interest rate environment, which really moved pretty quickly over 2022, 2023, but also a whole series of of issues in the regulatory space. Um, We have the specter of a variety of regulatory uh, things coming out of the federal government that would regulate the rental housing industry in a way that it hasn't been regulated before. So those are things that investors and, and people in the space are looking at very carefully. And then also at the beginning of 2023, we saw this disruption in regional banks. And regional banks play a very important role in helping support multifamily development, particularly in providing construction financing. So you have all those things kind of coming together in 2023, making 2023 a pretty difficult year. 2024, we have a couple glimmers of hope. So for example, the Fed has been clear with us that they are going to stop increasing rates and they've signal that they will start reducing rates. We don't know when. There, We have done a lot of work, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, throughout this conversation, really trying to educate federal lawmakers and, and folks on the state and local level and voters about the rental housing industry and pushing back on some of these policies that would really hurt the thing, the very thing we need the most, which is housing supply. So, and I think there's some opportunities actually to get new housing supply legislation passed. We're, we're looking very um, promisingly at the implementation of uh, expansion of the low-income housing tax credit and a few other things. So I think we're in a place where 2024 is going to continue to be bumpy as we see the interest rate and the market rate environment move out. But, but I think a lot of people are looking very hopeful in the latter part of 2024 and into 2025 that things will continue to pick up. That sounds really interesting. And of course, a lot of what you mentioned there is obviously legislation, regulation, policy related. And we're definitely going to touch on that more in this conversation because it's so important. But before we get there, you mentioned some other trends too that you're expecting to see throughout this year. Do you want to elaborate on any of those and why they're going to be so important and impactful moving forward throughout the rest of 2024? Sure. Well, I think the biggest issue is we finally got the attention of federal lawmakers, state and local policymakers. We just need more housing in this country. Right. And we, this organization, along with many others, have worked very hard to show data that proves that out, to be sure that people understand that fact. And I feel like we're slowly starting to win that battle, frankly. 
I think people are now understanding that there is a supply problem and the solutions to it are multi-pronged. Uh, it's not just one solution, it's multiple solutions. Some at the federal level, like I mentioned, the low-income housing tax credit is one piece, but it's not a panacea. Many of the opportunities to help build more housing that we need in this country are at the state and local level. Mm -hmm. Uh, And many states and localities are already moving in the direction of reducing barriers to the creation of multifamily housing, creating, putting more money at the state and local level into particularly affordable housing opportunities, and really recognizing in some states, closing the door to rent regulation and other regulatory structures that just make it difficult for investors to invest in their communities. So we're seeing some of that happening already. I expect that's going to be a big highlight for 2024. We're going to see more states and localities pick up those kinds of solutions and start moving the ball forward on those. One of those solutions you mentioned, state and local, reducing some barriers to entry for multifamily. What does that really mean? What are some of those barriers that you see them reducing? Oftentimes, we struggle to find land that's affordable to build multifamily on because the zoning requirements in a particular jurisdiction make it very difficult. Um, 75% of the land in the United States in urban areas is zoned single family. Mm. So the, the, the price of land that's available for multifamily, and we need more units, we know, fastest way to get those more units is to build more on a particular site. Prices of the land that's available is going up. Um, Many localities have very onerous entitlement processes and other things. And then there's a pushback in some communities from not in my backyard folks, NIMBYs, that Mm -hmm. um, make it very difficult. So a lot of states and localities are really looking at using state law to push localities to say, hey, you need to open up the opportunities for multifamily housing because we need to remove those barriers, cost barriers, time barriers, and a number of other things as well. Wonderful. So maybe 2024 will be the start of a kickoff of less nimbyism. We're moving in that. I feel a little bit of momentum already. So I feel like we're, we're making progress here. There are increasing numbers of national and local YIMBY organizations. Yes, in my backyard. Mm-hmm. There was federal legislation introduced, the Yes, in my backyard act, which, which would also help incentivize states and local governments using federal dollars to remove some of those barriers. So we're making some progress little by little, bit by bit. I feel like the housing shortage issues are not getting better in a way that people can see very quickly. And as we move into an election year, there's real opportunity for state and local legislators to focus on those kinds of solutions rather than on the regulatory solutions, which we know are counterproductive. Absolutely. So a little bit of a bright spot that hopefully we can look forward to. Moving on now, I know that earlier you mentioned the Fed really quickly. But let's get into that in a little bit more detail. To what extent could the Fed's decisions in 2024 regarding the federal funds rate impact the multifamily market? I think they could have a really important impact. Many of our members are um, have really slowed down their development pipelines just because the cost of capital has been uh, astronomical compared to the rates of return and the barriers that they're facing and the costs of building right now. As the Fed starts to bring those back into some kind of, first of all, a lot of it's just stability. I mean, people Mm -hmm. can can pencil out deals if they have some sense of the consistency of what that rate's going to be. So as we're seeing some more stabilization, we're seeing that already. And then as we see some drops, that will create more liquidity in the market. There are pent-up deals sitting on desks across the country uh, that could build the housing that we need. 
So I have a very positive feeling that if we see those rates decrease to a point where that does create more liquidity in the market, there's also equity sitting on the sidelines too, waiting to come into the multifamily space. We know the demand is there. The demand is as far as the eye can see. So this is a place where people want to put money. It's, we just need to make sure that we can pencil out the deals. Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball. None of us do. Do you anticipate those rates coming down enough to make a significant impact this year? Or is that more of a 2025 thing? I, I wish I knew. Um, but I would, I would be making a lot of money if I did. Uh, <laughs> I think what even if they don't come down significantly, let's say, just the consistency, and I think will help shake some deals loose uh, mm. that may have been able to, to go forward with different kinds of financing structures, maybe lower debt structures or other things, but the consistency will help. That makes sense. Another thing that I think has been sort of inconsistent, perhaps stopping some deal flow and some volume is that bid-ass spread that we've been seeing. How do you anticipate the bid-ass spread to play out this year? I think, again, interest rates. Right. <laughs> it's all connected, <laughs> we, huh? We see the interest rates come down. I think we'll, we'll see closing the gaps. There are a lot of opportunities for, for property transfers and transitions. People are, are constantly looking at how to shape their portfolios in a way that makes sense for them. So I, I think there's a lot sitting on the sidelines, but you know, if we see the interest rates get in a place where it makes sense, we'll see those, we'll see that gap shorten. So let's jump into two things that NMHC has already put out this year, both of equal importance and really interesting. The first of those two projects relates to rent control. Can you tell me a little bit more about this project and why it's so important to your work? Sure. So, so rent control has been a, a concept that's been around, you know, since the early part of the 20th century. It was used primarily in times of emergency in the U.S. It was used during World War One uh, to ensure housing prices were stabilized for the workforce that was needed to support the war effort. Also during World War Two, and it's in a place like New York, for example, then it's stuck. And we have that's probably the place where rent control has been the longest and, and the most studied in the U.S. And there's some mythology around this idea that regulating rents are the answer to housing affordability and that somehow renters are going to be able to have greater access to housing and at, at affordable, decent prices if you just regulate the rents. There are now decades and decades of research, and we did a paper in 2018 that really collected a lot of this research um, that show that it has the exact opposite effect. Rent control actually hurts renters. It creates an environment where that capital flow is not happening in places where rent control or rent um, stabilization programs are happening. It reduces housing opportunity, which increases costs. Um, when you're not building enough housing, which we've now learned the hard way coming out of COVID, you're going to have increased costs. So what we did, 2018 work, I thought was really good, but we've seen since 2018 a number of quote, variations on rent control. Rather than having what we call traditional rent control, which says rents can only go up X percent, that's it. A number of jurisdictions have been experimenting with well, maybe it's a percentage plus CPI, and there'll be exceptions for certain things, or landlords can bring in the costs plus some uh, inflated factor. And these are called sometimes rent regulation, rent stabilization, anti-gouging, anti-rent gouging provisions. So they're going by different names. 
And politicians, I think many of them have seen that rent control does not work, and, and the data is very clear on that. So they're trying to promote these other solutions to say, oh, well, it's not rent control. It, will, it won't have these bad effects. Well, since a number of them have been passed over the last five or six years and now have been researched, so we now have some data on those, we updated the research that we did in 2018 to really include research that it went back to some of the old research, but also included some of the newer research on these different kinds of variations on rent control. And frankly, the findings were the same. While rent stabilization provisions may help a small handful of renters in certain communities, they do so to the exclusion of the entire rental market. And as our population grows, they really, really hurt people that can't get access to the market at all. Uh, so that's another piece that we, we found in this new research. The other nuance on that is that the benefits of rent control really inure largely to the wealthy and to uh, white and older renters. Um, I think there is a perception that somehow rent control is a form of racial and economic equity for renters. And in fact, it really has the opposite impact. Got it. Obviously, a lot of rent control policies are not doing what we need them to do. And the findings in this study prove that. What, on the contrary, are some regulations that could actually increase the supply of housing and therefore lower housing costs? I think we're going back to this idea. It's not more regulation, it's less. Mm -hmm. Can we provide uh, reductions of some of those barriers on the state and local level, zoning and other things that prevent the creation of more rental housing. There are some states that are in Massachusetts has long done this. California has now done this, that affirmative regulatory side have created laws that require state and local governments, particularly local governments, to have housing plans in place and to say, here's how we are expanding the supply of housing to meet the population demands that we're going to have in the future. I think some of those statutes while they're putting a regulatory framework around a local government, they do have promise because it makes those localities think. California has an enforcement provision. If those localities are not doing what they're supposed to be doing under those statutes, they've begun to enforce those laws. So I, I think there is opportunity there on the proactive regulatory side to make localities think about and plan for the building of housing rather than taking the politically easy way out and sometimes supported by their own voters and constituents to say, no, thank you. We don't need any more multifamily here, which what that leaves you is, is communities that are very exclusive. Okay. And if there was one takeaway from this study by Dr. Arthur C. Nelson that you want our listeners today and perhaps the readers of the study to walk away with, is there one? And if so, what would that be? Rent control still hurts renters and, and it hurts by not creating the housing opportunities and the new supply that we need to support our growing population. Mm -hmm. And so now let's move on. Another recent NMHC project, also incredibly interesting. This one was less intuitive personally for me to read, and it's about fraud. Can you talk to me about what we're seeing with this fraud, this report that you put out, this study? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because this is something that our members have been talking to us about really um, over the last year or so and, and really coming out of COVID. And it's an increase in not just struggling with collections coming out of the COVID moratorium. A, a number of uh, rental housing providers have really struggled with 
collections per se, because a, a number of jurisdictions aren't enforcing the lease. But in this case, the, the problem is happening at the very beginning of the process where people are buying online or, or through some other mechanism, new identities, including driver's licenses, IDs, employment history, credit histories, other things, and um, applying for rental housing with those false identities and knowing full well that they do not have the income that would otherwise, or the credit history that would otherwise make them qualified for that rental housing. And then they're getting into the units and um, they're not paying. And they know now that, that we're in an environment where a lot of localities are not enforcing leases and they're not processing eviction claims or other things. So they can stay for pretty extended periods of time and not paying at all or, or paying far less. You know, I hate to say that everyone who's doing this is doing it maliciously. I mean, I think right. people are, but it is what it's doing is it's hurting every person in that building and it's hurting the rental market generally because rental housing providers are struggling to make ends meet in an increased operating cost environment and other things. If, you, if you're doing that, you're not going to keep investing in the creation of the new housing that we need. So it's completely backfiring on the rental housing community as a whole. And um, this is something that we've really worked very hard with our members and, and our partners at the National Apartment Association have worked with us as well to elevate this issue. Um, we, we would like to see some federal intervention here in ensuring that these kinds of fraudulent schemes are crimes, because mm -hmm. they do oftentimes cross state lines and other things, and that they are prosecuted and taken seriously. Um, it's very easy to do this. I, you know, my 19-year-old daughter showed me how to do it on TikTok. She said, here, mom, here's what you need to do. And there are TikTok ads and, and other social media postings that say, hey, you know, here's exactly what you need to do. And, and that's got to stop. Yeah, that was one of my follow-up questions for this because you do say in the study, this is driven in part by social media platforms such as TikTok and Instagram. As a Gen Z myself, I didn't really quite know what that meant because I haven't personally seen it. Um, can you elaborate on that? It's like videos telling people how to commit this fraud is what you're saying? They're how-to videos. Um, oh my goodness. Workshops that will tell you, here's exactly what you need to do. Um, we've had reports from other members that there are like flyers on telephone poles and trees in certain communities saying, need a new, need a new ID to rent an apartment. Here's what you need to do and call this number. So we're seeing this happening um, in a growing way. And again, the numbers in the fraud survey were staggering. 20, up to 25% of eviction claims by the folks that responded to our survey were related to fraud from the very beginning of the process. That's a huge number. And in some communities, it's much higher. Uh, we're seeing pockets of this really pop up in, in Atlanta, for example, and in, in a few other places where it's become much more prevalent. I think there's a slightly younger demographic that is on TikTok or perhaps seeing these ads on social media. Does that mean that it's this younger demographic that is primarily making up these fraudulent reports? Um, that's a great question. I don't know that we dove into the age basis for this necessarily, but mm -hmm. increasingly people of all ages are, are using social media <laughs> right. for a variety of reasons. So, and I think if you get one person that tells two friends and so on and so on, you, you have it across uh, generations and across demographics. Got it. So what is there to be done from a multifamily standpoint to combat this issue? 
interestingly, it's sort of flying in the face at the time. And I mentioned earlier in our conversation that the federal government is very interested in creating more room to lift some of the stringency that many multifamily providers have used in terms of credit, in terms of rental history, and in terms of employment history to make it easier for renters who apply to qualify for rental housing. So there's a, there's a whole uh, regulatory scheme that's happening to make the screening process less stringent. At the very same time, you have all this fraud going on. So these two things are going to have to come together and we're going to have to hit a happy balance. A number of our partners uh, have been in our companies in the PMS space and others are looking at ways where they can use their systems to detect fraud in a, in a better way. Um, I think that's that's a huge help. And I, it's just getting that technology up and running and, and used by as many people as we possibly can. I think that's one option. But also rental housing providers and, and managers of rental property need to be able to reject people right. when they see those fraudulent things happening or when they when they have suspicions about it. So that those two things have to happen simultaneously, I think. Got it. So we need tech to combat tech that's teaching people how to commit fraud. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So throughout our conversation today, we've talked a lot about different legislation. What is one policy change. I know that there's obviously so much that you want to see happen, but if you could choose one policy change to see in 2024, what would that be? Well, my uh, my standard to this answer has been the implementation of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, which would expand the use of the low-income housing tax credit, expand its financial viability, create as much as 200,000 new units um, we have seen it included in the recently marked up uh, tax bill. So we may actually see this happen. It's something that NMHC and a coalition of organizations have worked very hard to promote over the last couple of years. It seems like a no-brainer in the environment that we're in. And um, it has been a struggle to get it over the finish line, it has 200 bipartisan uh, supporters in both the House and the Senate. But it looks like we actually may see some success on this. So that's that's very exciting. I think that's a good first step. It certainly is not a panacea, but it is a good first step. Absolutely. I hope we see it happen. Agreed. Okay. One last question for you here. The FCC released a new digital discrimination rule this week that I believe could negatively impact housing providers. Could you tell me more about the implications of this and what your thoughts on on how it might affect renters this year and in the near future? This has been something that's been tossed around over the last year or so, and our staff has been working very hard with the Federal Communications Commission and coalitions of other organizations. And FCC has been considering for a long time, at the behest of the Biden administration, rules on um, digital discrimination, which is something we very much support the idea that everyone should have access to broadband and internet connectivity. We learned during the pandemic the hard way, how important that is and how particularly low to moderate income communities and and multifamily communities, frankly, often get left behind in having the access that they need. So we have been working very hard on federal programs to financially support the expansion of broadband internet connectivity and being sure that, that it's available for multifamily so we can ensure that our residents and renters have access to it. Unfortunately, the FCC uh, issued a rule just this week 
that would make that really takes that digital discrimination concept and expands it so dramatically to make not only broadband and telecom providers responsible for skipping over rural communities or underserved minority communities or others, but also makes the owners of rental property equally financially and from a from a discrimination standpoint responsible as well. We we really think that takes it way too far. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, our our owners and operators and managers want access to broadband, but we don't control it. And um, it also creates avenues for those providers to come into our buildings without our uh, ability to control it. It also, I think, to some extent, could limit consumer choice and opportunities for consumers to get that service at a more cost-effective manner. Uh, many of our operators have been looking at bundling broadband services and other things because we can get economies of scale. We can pass those cost savings along to the renters in our buildings. And the new rule, we think, would undermine our ability to do that. So we're, we're very concerned about this. Um, we're looking at our options now. But it's something that, that the rental housing community really is going to need to get behind. You said you're looking at your options now as alternatives. What would an alternative option or rule be that you think would you know, better address this? It's a little bit complicated, but it would be to remove rental housing owners from the definition of covered entities. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also making states and localities responsible. They too are covered entities. I'm not sure that states and localities can't have the power, although they have more power than rental housing providers do, to control broadband providers and ensure that they're making their services available to all communities on an equal basis. So if we could be removed from that definition, that w- there are a few other things, but that would be that would be a very important first step. Okay, I see. Thank you. As we wrap up this conversation here, is there anything that you feel like we didn't hit on or that you want to touch on for the year that we have ahead? Um, I think we are at a really interesting moment in time. For many years, those of us that have worked in housing for a long time, particularly on the advocacy side, have waited for the time when lawmakers at the federal, state, and local level actually cared about housing or, or were actually interested. We have hit that moment and then some. Now everyone cares. Now all political stripes, people are, housing is on everyone's speeches. People want to do something about housing, particularly affordable housing. So this is a great opportunity. We are, 2024 is an election year. So this is truly the peak of our opportunity to make a difference. And I am very hopeful and again, this happens during election years, unfortunately, that people will see that housing is is a basic human need. It is not a partisan issue. People of all political beliefs need housing, and we want them all to have housing in a civil society. So I'm hoping that this is a place where bipartisanship can really work. And I'm hoping we see more of it, like I hope we're going to see in the low-income housing tax credit passage. I hope we can see more pro-housing legislation on a bipartisan basis. Absolutely. As am I. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today. I really appreciate having you as a guest and featuring your insights on this now quarterly podcast. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate the opportunity. And to all of our listeners, be sure to tune in next quarter for another conversation between MHN and NMHC. Have a great day.